Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The second reading is taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share your, in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintances with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your accounts. I've received full payments, I've more than enough. I'm plentifully, I'm plentifully supplied now that I've received from Aphrodite's the gifts you sent. They are fragrant offerings and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Very good morning again. And my name is Tom, and I'm a senior minister. And um, we're, we're finishing our series in the Ten Commandments this morning. So, Commandment number 10, if you want to have that in front of you in the Bibles, it's on page 78. That would be really helpful. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would open our eyes and speak to us clearly by your Holy Spirit. Help us to listen, to see what you're saying here and what it means in our lives today. Amen. Well, um, last night at the Jazz Carols, I talked about one of the uh, Marks and Spencer Christmas adverts, um, which features a range of celebrities getting rid of the particular things that they don't like about Christmas. So the pile of Christmas cards gets set on fire, uh, a board game gets thrown across the room, Christmas cracker paper hats get thrown into a wood chipper, that's what's going on there, um, and the, uh, my favourite one, the elf on the shelf gets uh, booted off the top of a house. And the slogan for the advert is, this Christmas, do only what you love. Do only what you love, which at face value sounds positive and liberating and 
you know, chimes in perfectly with the spirit of, of the age, kind of you do you and all that kind of thing. Um, but of course, as, as we thought about last night, if you were with us, you, you don't have to think about the slogan, do only what you love for very long before you realise this is a recipe for total disaster. It fails completely to reckon with the way human beings have a tendency to love what is bad for us and what is bad for those around us. So this term, we've been looking at these Ten Commandments, and, and, and you know, when, when people murder or, or commit adultery or steal or lie, usually when you dig into what is going on, actually what is happening is that they are doing only what they love. Isn't that right? You know, for some, they might immediately regret it, but the point is, almost always, when they or when we do those things, well, no one's forcing us to do it. We are doing what we love in that moment. That is our will. And the love for our, our own pleasure, our own immediate satisfaction drives us to those things. So is doing only what you love a good thing in those circumstances? Well, probably not. And that question gets us into this final commandment, which at face value, it feels like a little bit of an anticlimax. So, you know, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, you know, we know those things are wrong, and even if we struggle not to do them. And, and, and there are laws against some of those things, but coveting or as we as we heard earlier kind of wanting what other people have in, in different ways envying being jealous is that really such a big deal i mean what you know what harm can a bit of secret envy do anyone else well there are three things that we need to see and understand about coveting to see what's going on here and you can see there on, on the back of the notice sheet if that's helpful but the first is about that question of whether coveting and envy are just harmless. Nothing to worry about. So first of all, we need to see actually the sin of coveting is deadly. Now, if you, if you don't recognise that, that is a picture of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. He's the guy who covets the ring. That's his whole sort of uh, meaning of his life. And there he is with the ring. Well, the, the point is, you see, there is a reason that the Ten Commandments end in the way that they do. And that is because, in one sense, coveting is the root cause of all the other commandments, even, uh, even the first four. This is the only commandment that deals explicitly with an inward heart attitude rather than an outward attitude action. But the point is you don't get outward action without first some kind of inner heart desire to do the outward thing. So Jesus famously in the Sermon on the Mount picks up the murder commandment and he says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, do not be angry. And the Ten Commandments shows us that, that what Jesus is doing there isn't adding something to the Ten Commandments. He's not kind of saying, oh yeah, you had these Ten Commandments, but now I want you to go deeper than you ever had to do before, as if, you know, in the Old Testament, God only cared about outward appearances, and now Jesus wants to get into the heart. Now, actually, God has always cared about the heart attitude. You can't separate them out. If you murder, it's because you were angry first. 
If you steal, it's because you have coveted the thing that you have stolen. And it's there in the Ten Commandments, you see. And if you worship other gods, Commandments 1 and 2, it's because you covet the security that you get from worshipping those other gods. Coveting was what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden when they looked at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they thought that if we could just eat that fruit, we've been told we can eat any other fruit in the garden, any at all from all the other trees, but no, we want that one because we think if we eat from that, the serpent has convinced them they can be like God. No longer having to depend on him as creatures, but trying to sort of be his equal in some way. See, the sin, that original sin in the garden is a sin of coveting at its heart. One Christian writer commenting on this tells of a rabbi who was talking to him about the difference between what Jews believe and what Christians believe. And the rabbi said, you know, one of the greatest differences between our two religions is the idea that you've committed a sin just by desiring or thinking it. We Jews believe you have to actually commit the physical act before it's really sin. Otherwise, we'd be sinning all the time. Now, you can understand in one sense why someone might say that. But from a Christian point of view, I think you want to say, actually, no, that, that, that's exactly the point. And it's the point made by the commandments themselves, if you actually look at what it's saying. Do you see? Sin, sin is not just an occasional problem, an anomaly for human beings. It is something that is constantly with us and begins when our hearts want what God says is not right. When we want what we love more than we want what God loves. And that is not just a sort of thing that happens from time to time. It is a daily, hourly, minute by minute problem, isn't it? Martin Luther is helpful to hear on this. He says that the last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright. People who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the previous commandments. So do you see, you know, if we sat through the last few weeks and thinking, well, yeah, I've never murdered, I've never committed adultery, I've been faithful in my marriage, I'm not a thief, I don't lie. Well, you're almost certainly lying if, you, if, you're, if you're saying that about lying. We said that last week, didn't we? But the, the point is, this one is especially for you and for me. Because can you honestly say that you never look around you and think, as it says in, in verse 17 there, um, I am jealous of my neighbour's house. You never think that? Or I'm jealous of my neighbour's husband or wife. Uh, we, we don't tend to be jealous of servants and oxes and donkeys today, I, I, I guess, most of the time. But the commandment that ends with the catch-all, anything that belongs to your neighbour. So that could be your neighbour or your friend or your work colleague's money, lifestyle, career success, family circumstances academic achievements, physical appearance, popularity. David was saying before, it could be their trainers. It could be more spiritual things like their giftedness, their ease with people, or, or, or just what the wider world actually would just call plain good luck. 
You know, they happened to be in the right place at the right time and success fell into their lap. While the rest of us seemingly, you know, are working much harder and achieve far less. And so we covet. See, coveting can take many different forms. It can be about, you know, longing to be like somebody else, have what they have, but it can be even more ugly than that. And it can involve longing for what they are or what they have to be taken away. Isn't that a a desire we have in in our hearts sometimes? Or, Or even sort of secretly rejoicing when they lose what they have. Actually, the, the human heart, if we're honest, is a pretty ugly place, isn't it? If we're honest about what goes on inside. And this commandment is getting to that and saying, this is just as deadly as the more obvious sins covered in the other nine. So the sin of coveting is deadly. And so next, we might then push further and, and ask again, well, okay, why are, are our hearts like this? What is actually going on? when we covet and we grow jealous. Well, here's the second thing we need to see. The heart of coveting is discontentment. Discontentment. So um, the Apostle James says something about coveting in James chapter 4. Just put it on the screen quickly so we can see. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. See, coveting is about our deepest desires, about not getting what we want. The French Christian philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal said this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Isn't that great? Kind of thing, yeah, I think there's something in that. See, we are always discontent. We always want more. And behind discontentment is the fact that we don't actually trust the God who made us and who promises to care for us and promises to provide for us. That's why we become discontent. So what do you think about this statement, which I came across this week? If God wanted us to have more right now, we would have it. If we need a different gift to enable us to glorify him, God would provide it. If we were ready for the job that we long for, God would put us into it. If we were supposed to be in a different situation from the one that we are in, we would be in it. See, we, we do believe in a God who is in charge, who we can trust, don't we? Well, perhaps though someone might come back and say, well, you know, surely not all desire for change of circumstances is wrong. And I think that's probably true. After all, we're not Buddhists. So, you know, in Buddhism, all desire whatsoever is evil. That's the kind of point of Buddhism. And the goal of life is to free yourself from desire, full stop. And when you achieve that, that is when you found nirvana. But actually, this isn't about saying, no, all desires 
that human beings experience um, are, are, are wrong, but it's about, the, it's about saying coveting is about wrong desire. It's a slightly different thing, you see, it's slightly more specific. So we're not, we're not fatalists, therefore, who say, well, God's in charge, and that means I just sit back and do absolutely nothing. Well, it, it, you know, it may be right to apply for a different job or to seek to improve our financial circumstances or whatever, but the, the real question is, what is the desire behind those desires? That is the point. You see, so often the problem is desiring the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reason. And it's easy to go through life never acknowledging that actually we are allowing pretty ungodly desires, desires that are not honouring to God, and, and, and allowing those ungodly desires to drive our everyday decision making. And what we don't notice is that we've become like the person who has been married 15 times and calls themselves a serial monogamist. This idea is, you know, for, for each of these 15 marriages, I have been completely committed to my spouse for as long as we remained married. And you might in those circumstances say, hang on a minute, what, what, what does that actually mean? You see... What we, don't, what we then don't notice is that we do that with our coveting and our desires. You know, we are always living for the next, the next big thing, you know, the next holiday, the next birthday or Christmas and the gifts that it will bring, thinking that is what will bring me the satisfaction that I long for. And we forget that actually we've been doing that for years, years and years and years over and over again. And what happens is the satisfaction, if it comes at all, comes, you know, for a few minutes, a few days, and then we go back around again onto the next thing that we're longing for that's going to bring the satisfaction that we crave. See, the, the, you might have heard this before, the billionaire Nelson Rockefeller was famously asked, how much money does it take to be happy? And he replied, just a little bit more. And actually, as Solomon in Ecclesiastes agrees, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. See, it's the same with so, so many things, actually. It's not just money, is it? You know, when we covet these things in unhealthy and ungodly ways whether it's you know, binging on food or alcohol or, or craving popularity or attention or with things that are more obviously wrong to desire in themselves, like porn, in all of these things there is never enough. We covet more and more. And the fundamental issue you see is not with desire itself but that we are coveting and desiring the wrong things in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reason. You see, actually we were made for desire but ultimately to desire God. That's how we've been made as human beings. Augustine begins his confessions with these words, God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. See, so much of the problem is that we allow our hearts to be restless. We, 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 we nurse that desire 
but we allow it to be set on other things when we've been created and made for our desires to be set on the God who made us. Later, Augustine, in, in that same work, Confessions, Augustine says of his life before he came to faith in Christ, he says, I lived in misery like every man whose soul is tethered by the love of things that cannot last and then is agonized to lose them. The love of things that cannot last and then is agonized to lose them. See, that is the tragedy of the discontentment that underlies coveting, isn't it? You see, it just breeds more and more and more discontentment, more and more searching for that kind of elusive high, that elusive comfort, that elusive pleasure, and growing more and more bitter and frustrated when it can't be found. See, coveting and longing for what we don't have is just actually, in the end, a symptom of that fundamental unwillingness that we have as human beings to trust the God who made us and depend on him rather than ourselves. That's what's going on. The heart of coveting is discontentment. Well then, what is the solution? That's what we need to see. Thirdly and finally, the cure for coveting is Jesus Christ. In uh, Philippians chapter 4, the second reading, you might want to, to flick to that. It's on page 1181 again. Uh, we're just going to look at that and see how Paul gives us a vision of the opposite of coveting. So Philippians 4 on page 1181, he, he is thanking the Philippians for the love and support they've shown to him. But he wants to do it, as he, makes it he, as he speaks to them, he wants to make it clear he's not trying to become dependent on them. That's really important for him as he, as he speaks to them. So verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for, as he thanks them, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So do you see what he's saying? You see, coveting can often be dressed up by this little word, need. Isn't that right? I need this. I need a new phone. I need a better car. I need a better job. I need a better life. Well, Paul, in response to that kind of attitude, says, well, actually, he knows about being in need and he knows about living in plenty. He's had both in his life, as lots of people have in different ways. But for Paul, the key is that he has learned the secret of being content in any or every situation. So, wow, okay, the secret of being content. Tell us then, Paul, what is this secret? It doesn't come easily, he's telling us. It, it's something that you need to find. Where, though, where does it come from? Well, verse 13, look at this. This is a verse, do you, do you see this? This is a verse that's much loved by makers of Christian calendars. Verse 13 tends to be sort of taken out of context, put on a lovely background of a sort of the sun setting or something. And, um, uh, and, and there it says, and, it, and um, can someone just, someone just come in at the back? Would you mind just going to see what's going on there? Gone downstairs? 
Thanks. Um, some translations here with I can do all this through him, it gives me strength. Some translations say all things, which is um, what the calendar um, maker sees on with the, 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 the beautiful sunset in the background. I can do what, but, but um, can you, it's helpful that they translate it like this because it makes it clear. Verse 13 is linked to what has come before. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all this living in want or in plenty and being content, whatever the circumstances. I have got the secret of being content. How? Through him who gives me strength. That's what he's saying, do you see? That strength comes through Jesus Christ. And in the verses that follow, he again thanks them for the gifts that he sends, but he wants to say the main reason for celebrating the gifts is not that they benefited him, but, that the, but what the gifts say about the Philippians. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And then verse 19, look at this. Do you see this? My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. It's really important to hear. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You see, this right here is the cure to coveting. Okay? Because the root cause of coveting and being envious and jealous is that we do not trust God We do not trust him that he knows what is best for us. We do not trust that he will provide what we need. And so we go looking for more and more, even though it turns out that going after more and more never satisfies anyway and leaves us miserable. But my God will meet all, not just some, he won't just meet some of those needs. No, he will meet all the things you actually need in your life. And how will he do it? According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Well, okay, how much is that then? is Is that a good thing? Well, no, the riches of his glory are what Jesus purchased through his death. That's an inexhaustible supply of riches that Jesus has won for us through dying on the cross and rising from the dead. See, what this is saying to us is, you know, God is an investor who has gone all in for his people that's what he's done do you see see and he's already done that he's not just saying i might do that you know if your behavior is good enough one day in the future i might go all in for you and and uh, no no i've already done that i've sent my son and his death that he's died and the new life that that has brought brings an inexhaustible supply of riches to provide for your every needs See, when we covet, we desire the wrong things in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. But Paul is saying here, because Jesus died, because Jesus has already made that all-in priceless investment, we can trust God to provide what we need. We can trust him to provide it when we need it, in the way that we need it, for the reasons that we need it. How do we know that we can trust him? Because he's already gone all in for us. That's the point, do you see? He's already done the the priceless thing. So of course he can provide for our daily needs here and now. Of course he can. Why do we doubt? He's already gone all in and sent his son. 
We already therefore have in Christ everything we actually need. Do you see? Anything else is a bonus. The things that we so often fret about and that capture our hearts and then disappoint us when they don't happen, it's all froth compared to what we've been given in Jesus Christ. That is the secret of being content that Paul is getting at here. To see, look at what you've got in Jesus Christ and be content with that. So can you see that the Ten Commandments are actually finishing as they began? The Ten Commandments began by saying, look, it's all about God. Have no other gods but him. Do not worship idols. And we're ending in the same kind of way. You see, be wholehearted for God. That's what this is saying. Be Jesus people who want him more than anything else. And so as we finish then, this is encouraging us to just take note of what we find our hearts longing for and desiring. Because what do those desires say about where we are looking for contentment? And what does where we look for contentment say about our relationship with God? That's what these verses are saying. In particular, where we see ourselves developing a kind of serial monogamy relationship with stuff and experiences and life in general, you know, always going after the next thing, never actually satisfied, that's where we need to look out for those impulses particularly. Let's not be the people who reach the end of life, whenever, however long God gives us, and realise that actually we've wasted years of time and energy longing for and coveting things that don't really matter. Or worse, not just that they don't matter, that they actually destroy us. The cure for that is to keep looking at Jesus. To begin each day not with a consumer attitude of what can I get out of today, what can I buy today, what can I, how can I advance today, but first, how can I know Jesus today? See, he comes first. And then to end each day, thanking God. See, one of the key weapons with which to fight discontentment is to cultivate an attitude of thankfulness for what we already have in Christ. There's an old hymn with a cheesy tune that uh, puts it clearly and simply. I'll read this as we finish. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. Count your 
blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God hath done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God hath done. Let's pause and pray. Father, we know our hearts are covetous. We long for the wrong things in the wrong way, at the wrong time, for the wrong reason. We know that the, the, the reason that we do that is because we are looking for contentment in other places other than in you. We praise you that you are a God who has gone all in by sending your son. And so we can trust you to care for us, to provide for what we need. Father, where we're struggling to do that, where our hearts are, are torn and we are looking for security in other ways, might we be more and more aware of that and might we be able to fight that with the gospel of Jesus by putting our faith in him? Father, if we've not yet put our faith in Jesus, if we're still thinking these things through, help us to see clearly that nothing else will satisfy, nothing else will provide the security that we need in life and in death. Might we, even for the first time, put our trust in Jesus and then as we go on in the Christian life, help us day by day to set our hearts on Jesus, to count the blessings that we have in what you have done. Both in Jesus and indeed in, in our lives, the things we can give thanks for and recognize your goodness in so many ways. Might we be thankful people, people marked by that spirit, not of coveting, but of thankfulness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.